Hey church, there is so much on the horizon at Grace Fellowship. Did you know that in the next eight weeks, five missions teams from Grace will be leaving for foreign soil? That means nearly a hundred of our brothers and sisters are going to be going and ministering in Guatemala, Haiti, and Peru. Two of those teams are youth teams and all of them need our prayers. Pray for God to meet physical needs for safety and health. And most of all, pray that lives would be changed on these trips, not just the lives of the people we're ministering to, but that God would move in a powerful way in the lives of each of our team members too. I know that they'll appreciate those prayers. And if you'd like to find out more about these trips and how you can join a global missions team in the future, there's plenty of info on our website at gracefellowship.com missions. looking a lot different at Grace Half Moon these days. That's because the construction teams have actually begun to connect the existing building with the new structure. That means bathrooms are moving around and office space is being repurposed, but it's all part of the plan. Just another step closer to seeing this project become a reality. The space upstairs for students and youth is going to be amazing, and I know the ministry teams in Half Moon can't wait to get into this new building. And in the meantime, I want to give a big shout out to everyone who's been giving regularly to the 2020 Vision campaign. As you can see, we're only about a week away from cracking that $2 million mark in total gifts since the campaign began. Way to go, guys. On our website, you can find out about each of the goals in the 2020 Vision campaign, including the humanitarian aid projects. Just visit gracefellowship.com 2020vision. It's not about me, but I'm part of this amazing story. Ask any one of us, it's about giving our good Father glory. This story of grace began way back in 93. But its roots go back further, and the fruit will outlast you and me. And He brings sunshine and rain that makes the tree grow. And the leaves keep on turning, but I got a feeling that they're just the intro. Because God's plan for this Grace Fellowship of Brothers and Sisters has never been anything less than epic. Helping the poor, tired, and hurting into the kingdom. Binding up wounds, preaching the gospel both in word and deed. This is our past, present, and future. This is the miracle mustard seed. Instead of looking back, we're looking outward and forward. More and better disciples? Yes, we want to see a whole lot more, Lord. So really, none of us are giving ooms and ahs to 25. We're lifting hands up to the one that makes us come alive. The Alpha, the Omega, the Author, the Creator. Father, Spirit, Son, three in one. Hello and welcome everyone to worship today. We're so glad that you're here. There's a popular saying out here in the culture Perhaps you've heard it or maybe used it. There's a saying, it takes teamwork to make the dream work. Every one of us loves to be a part of a team if that team is effective, if that team has a great, great camaraderie between its members, and if that team clearly understands its purpose and is seeing progress toward those goals. It takes teamwork to make the dream work. But when leaders think about putting a team together, there are three big C words that usually come to their mind. 
they think first of character, right? And if you've been uh, an employer, you know how important that is. There's probably nothing that you could list that would be more critical than character when it comes to an effective team. You've got to have people of integrity, people with values that live by those values. But then there's competence, right? It doesn't matter what the character is. If a person can't do what they need to do, then you can't really get anywhere. You've got to have people with abilities, talents, people who have skill to actually make it happen. Does this person have confidence is the question before you want to put somebody on a team. Character, competence, and of course that third big C word that team makers always use is chemistry, right? You got to have people that gel, as we say, that get along with one another, that kind of fit together nicely as a team. And you got to admit, when it comes to a team that's going to get it done, you can't get better than those three C's, character, competence, chemistry. But sometime back, somebody added a fourth C to this. And now, in addition to those three big ones, you'll hear the culture word used. Is this person that we're thinking about putting on this team, are they aligned with the culture of this organization? And every organization has a culture. The culture consists of our values and the way we tend to do things, our strategy, the way we go about our mission. Anytime you're choosing people for a team, you want to consider those four questions and get people that have that kind of alignment. But you know, we're going to study a passage today in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus just kind of blew all those categories with the people he chose. I mean, really, it's amazing. It's amazing the team that Jesus put together, and yet they still got the job done. This is a letter that Jesus received back in the first century from Jordan Management Consultants. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests and we've run the results through our computer. It's the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that, Jesus, you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. For instance, Simon Peter is emotionally unstable. He's given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership at all. The two brothers, James and John, place personal interest above company loyalty. And Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale on the team. We feel that it is our duty to inform you, sir, that Matthew, the tax collector, has been under investigation by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. Ah, one of the candidates, however, 
shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. Most people love him because he's ambitious and he's got a keen mind. He's highly motivated and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man, sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. Now, aren't you glad that God's ways are not our ways and God's thoughts are not our thoughts? So I don't know what kind of team you are a part of or what kind of team you may be looking to create, but let's learn together today as we study the way Jesus put a team together and some of the things that were a part of that process. The first one I want us to consider is step one, what you might say is the initial call. All discipleship. All discipleship begins with a call. Let's read in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. So get the idea, there's a number of disciples now, and he's choosing from this pool of larger disciples, 12 that he's going to make a special team out of, okay? And he's going to designate them, give them this name, apostles, to kind of set them apart from the other larger pool of disciples. Simon, whom he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. That's the team that Jesus assembled and called them apostles. But before we look at the makeup of the team, I want to just note one thing. Did you notice in verse 12 that before Jesus made this incredible choice, and by the way, all choices of leaders are important, but I'll tell you, when you think about what was hinging on this mission, it was a mission to change the world, really. This choice of people was particularly critical, and notice what Jesus did. This is amazing to me. Before he made this choice to put members on a team, he spent the whole night praying to his father. Let me ask you a question. What part does prayer play in your leadership? The leadership of your family, that workplace team that you lead, that that classroom setting, those people that you pour your life and influence into. Do you ever pray? And when you're about to make a new assignment or employ someone new, do you pray about that? Listen, if Jesus, the Son of God, spent a night in prayer before a decision like that, how much more should we pray before the big decisions of our life? You say, but Pastor Rex, I can't do that. I'm just too busy to pray. Well, I hear you. But I say you're too busy not to pray. When something is that important, we must carve out time to seek 
the Father and His will. And Christ had the genius to blend this diverse group of disciples. So I want you to notice some of the ways that they were diverse. First, they were a financially diverse group. They came from a number of different socioeconomic backgrounds. Some of them were fishermen, as you know. They were kind of these blue-collar guys. But there was also at least one, maybe more, what we might call white-collar in our culture, white-collar apostles, certainly Levi, or Matthew, as he's called in this list. He was certainly a white-collar guy, a tax collector. He was not living on the edge, let me tell you. When he first met Christ, you may remember, he had the money to throw this huge party and he thought nothing about it. But the thing was, because Jesus was in his life, he now valued relationship more than the pursuit of money. Some years ago, and many of you will still remember him, there was a beloved man in our church family named Bill Romer. He made a huge impact on a lot of people. Bill served as an elder for a number of years. He lived to be 80 years old and was actually serving as an elder, when, I believe, when he passed away. And Bill also led a number of different ministries, small groups, discipled and mentored a lot of people. One of the coolest things about Bill to me was his story. You see, Bill Romer, the wonderful disciple that he was, he didn't come to Christ until he was 50 years old. He was a very successful businessman and continued in business after coming to Christ. But I'll never forget something he told me one day. It really impacted me, and it told me something about Bill's character. Bill said, Rex, I spent the first 50 years of my life apart from God, not really having a relationship with Christ. And I guess if I could sum up all those years of acquiring money and packing money away in the bank and be, trying to be a business success and so on, I would say that my first 50 years were all about getting. It was all about me and what I could acquire, what I could get for me. Accolades, fame, influence, importance, position money. But he said, after I came to Christ, I said, Lord, let me make the next 50 years all about giving. Is your life about getting or is it about giving? When Jesus came into Matthew's life, it changed from getting to giving. It became about what is most important in life, and that was a relationship with Christ. They were diverse financially, but they were also a politically diverse group. You've got, for instance, just as one example, Simon the Zealot. Now, the Zealots were a sect, S-E-C-T, a sect within Judaism that were prominent. They were what you might call the nationalists. They were the flag-waving people in the country. They wanted to see Rome overthrown, and they were willing to become violent in order to do it. Zealots typically would carry around a dagger, a knife, so that if they were in a crowd and they could stick it in the back or cut the throat of a Roman soldier and felt they could get away with it, they would do it without blinking. 
They believed that the violence was worth it in order to accomplish their means. That's the kind of guy Simon the Zealot was before coming to Christ. He hated the Roman government. And then you got Matthew right beside him who's working for the Roman government. Can you imagine two people that are more politically diverse than that? And yet, what brought them together peacefully? It wasn't their politics. Jesus was the common denominator that brought them together. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not. But if you are a political conservative, I don't want to scare you or anything, but sitting on your road today are probably some political liberals. And I don't want to unnerve you or anything, but if you are a non-charismatic, uh, sitting on your very road today are probably some people who are. They, they may be the people with their hands up during worship, maybe, maybe not. But they're people who see things differently than you. And if you're here today and you say, wow, I'm kind of living on the edge financially. I barely get through. You probably need to be aware that there may be some people on your very row or sitting in front or behind you who are probably pretty well off. You say, well, how can people this diverse get along? Jesus Christ is our common denominator. Always has been always will be. He is the reason for this church. He's the one that we exist for. But third, I want you to see that this was an educationally diverse group. Now, we don't know exactly what their training had been. We do know that people like Thomas show this particularly inquisitive sort of philosophical bent we do know that Simon the Zealot has signs that he was perhaps trained. Many people um, conjecture that Matthew the tax collector was probably a man of letters. He had had some formal education. But we also know that most of these guys probably had no training at all. At all. If I was putting a team together to change the world, I want to tell you I'd put Rhodes Scholars on it. I'd choose people who are in the top 2 or 3% of their class academically. I would choose people with some incredible proven leadership ability, but not Jesus. He chose mostly ordinary people. I love that old story about the four guys that were riding on a plane. There was a doctor, a priest, a boy scout, and the smartest man in the world riding on this plane. It ran out of fuel. The plane began to go down. They knew their time was limited and that this was going to be the end. And they quickly realized that while there were four of them, there were only three parachutes. And so immediately when they realized that, this doctor grabbed one of those bundles, strapped it on, and said, I am a doctor, and I'm doing research in cancer, and I'm that close to a breakthrough. The world can't make it without me. He strapped on the bundle and jumped out of the plane. And then the smartest man in the world said, look, I am the smartest man in the world. I don't believe the world can do without my intelligence. And he grabbed one of the bundles and jumped out of the plane, and just the priest and the Boy Scout were left priest began to say, son, I've lived a long and wonderful life, and 
I'm ready to meet God, and you're so young. You've got your whole life ahead of you. You take the last parachute, and I'll go down with the plane. Kid said, cool it, Reverend. The smartest man in the world just grabbed my backpack and jumped out of the plane. (laughs) Sometimes we aren't as smart as we think we are, you know? Now, I'm amazed that Jesus chose people not because of what they were, not even because of what they claimed to be. He chose them for what they could be. Did you hear that? Not because of what they were right now as a snapshot, not even because of what they claimed to be. He chose people because he saw potential in them. He saw what they could be. Luke later describes two of these disciples, Peter and John, since Luke is also also the human author of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says that after religious leaders had become upset with them for preaching this Jesus, it says that they noticed that they were unschooled and ignorant men. Pretty ordinary. But they'd been with Jesus. People must have been looking at these choices and saying, Jesus, what are you thinking here? This seems a little weird. They might have been saying behind his back, look, if he's so smart, if he can do all these cool miracles and everything, why choose these guys? And they questioned his choice of disciples. But Jesus knew what he was doing, and he still does today. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Where Paul says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And he goes on and on. And then he sums up that passage by saying, therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The second thing I want us to see about this team that Jesus assembled, not only the initial call, but secondly, the careful training. Jesus called them, he chose them, but then he started training them and getting them ready to serve and to lead. Dale Carnegie said, people are developed the same way gold is mined. Several tons of dirt must be removed to get one ounce of gold. But you don't go into the mine looking for dirt. Oh, no. You go into the mine looking for gold. Can I tell you what God sees when he looks at you? He doesn't see dirt. He sees gold. He doesn't see all the flaws in your life, all the inadequacies, all the things you still have to overcome, all the hurts, habits, hang-ups that tend to hold you back. When God looks at us, he sees what we can be. He sees the gold, and he wants us to develop. He wants to train us. And if you're a leader, there are three things that we've got to give to people to prepare and equip them if they're going to step up and be effective leaders. The first, we've got to give them responsibility. Genuine responsibility, where it really does hang on their shoulders. It's on their plate. It's meaningful. Second, we've got to give them authority. Responsibility without authority is demoralizing, folks. 
Anytime a person has responsibility for something but doesn't have the commensurate authority in order to pull it off, to carry it out, that is a killer of a job. And the third is accountability. Responsibility, authority, accountability, and that's what Jesus gave. There's an old saying in leadership that leaders need to seek to work themselves out of a job. You know what that means? Wisdom says there should always be one or more persons that we are training, that we're mentoring, that we're developing, that we're spending some time with, teaching, training, trusting, urging them to step up and develop as a leader. It's not that we don't want to be in our job anymore. It's just that we realize, should we be suddenly out of the picture, we should have trained some people to take our place. Question, who are you currently mentoring? I try through the years to never have a season be very long that I'm not mentoring at least one person directly trying to pour into the person's life, trying to prepare for leadership, trying to help develop. Who are you mentoring currently? And if you're not, I urge you to prayerfully spend some time asking God, who could I call alongside of me as an apprentice? Who could I call alongside and begin to kind of make some investment into his or her life? That is such an important thing, and that's what Jesus is doing here. Third, the third step is the strategic delegation. Now we're gonna skip ahead today, don't worry, we're gonna come back and get uh, all of chapter six and chapter seven and chapter eight, but I wanna read a few verses now from chapter nine. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them a power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. Now if you've been studying this gospel carefully up until now. Here's what you would see, that up until now, Jesus has pretty much been doing the ministry, pretty much, and the disciples have been alongside of him, but kind of on the sidelines, kind of watching Jesus and learning from his example. But now there's a strategic shift in the ministry right here in chapter nine. And the strategic shift is, Jesus now says to them, okay, you've been watching me do it, now, I'm going to give you an assignment, and you're going to go and start doing this. You're going to be preaching. You're going to be casting out demons. You're going to be ministering to people. And he sets them in motion with this mission. And the text there is interesting. It uses two words that are critical. It says he gives them dunamis and exousia. <laughs> what does that mean? Deutimus, he gave them power. We get the word dynamite from that. So he gave them, in the Greek text, dunamine, and he gave them exousion. He gave them the rank, the right, the authority to go along with that power. This is big time stuff. Jesus is delegating the ministry to these guys. He's giving them responsibility and authority, and then there's going to be accountability at the end of this mission. John Maxwell, in his book, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, writes, if you're a leader, when your plate gets full with responsibilities, and you've worked harder, and you've worked smarter, then your next choice must be to work through others, to delegate. 
to develop an inner circle and hire the best and hand off everything that you possibly can. How are you at delegating? In your family? In your workplace? In the task and endeavors that you take on? You say, Pastor Rex, haven't you ever heard that old saying? If you want a job done right, do it yourself, right? And some of you live by that mantra. And there may be a few things. There may be a small group of things in your life that honestly you need to be doing, you yourself and no one else. But that's not leadership thinking if you think if you want a job done right, you got to do it yourself. No, if you want a job done, you need to allow someone to do it, even if they can do it 70% as well as you. Because leaders think about the future. Leaders understand scale. Leaders understand that I can't maintain this pace forever. And if it's always going to require my full involvement and investment, listen, it's not going to happen because the task is so much larger than me. And so we learn to delegate. So let me ask you, are you delegating? Or are you dumping? Some people confuse the two. Many people think they're delegating when they're really just dumping. They really just find something that they detest doing. They just really don't want to do it, and it's usually not that important anyway. And they just dump it on somebody and go, do this. That's not delegating. That's dumping. You're just dumping on someone and saying, just get this out of my sight. Please just get it done. Delegation is where you take things, some of which are really important, and you give instruction, and you give training, and you turn over the authority to do that job, and you don't micromanage the details. That is good delegation. Well, there's final, one final part of the process, and that is I want you to see the high expectation that Jesus had of these guys. He had high expectations for them. And by the way, I think that's one of the things that helped inspire them for the task. He genuinely expected a lot. And I've noticed something through the years, folks. People tend, tend, not always, but they tend to rise up to the true expectations that the leader has of them. If you don't expect much out of people, guess what? You're probably not going to get much. But people tend to raise their performance and their input based on the expectations. Jesus sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tuning. In other words, guys, you're going to travel light. We don't want to be encumbered with a bunch of stuff. We're not going to take a lot of gear with us. We're not going to carry a bunch of food and everything. Just travel light. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, this is interesting, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. In other words, th what this means is you're saying, look, the truth has been shared. Make no mistake, I 
have done my responsibility. I cannot control what happens with it then. I cannot control the result. Big lesson for leaders right here. I can't control the result, but I've got to do what I can. And that is, in this case, to share. So shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. I'm struck by three of these instructions. Don't take anything with you. Wow. That required them to kind of live by faith. It required them to get out there and meet people and kind of mix it up with people. It required them to learn to trust God and to have courage and faith in God. Second, he said, when you go, stay in houses. Interesting. Why houses and not inns? There were some ancient inns, what we would think of as hotels. Perhaps Jesus thought that would get a little too comfy, maybe. Maybe he thought that, hey, at that inn, you're just going to be catered to. And you're just going to get comfortable in this mission. No, it's a little awkward to go into people's houses and to receive their hospitality and so on. But again, you're going to be getting to know them, but I think Jesus also knew that because they were going to homes, it meant they would be moving around some. As Mark Twain said, you know, fish and house guests have something in common. They both stink after three days, right? So he knew, Jesus knew that these guys would be moving around if they stayed in homes. And then the final thing he says is, look, if they don't welcome you, shake the dust off your feet. Leaders, are you listening? One of the huge lessons we need to learn if we're gonna deal with the stress of life and ministry and our jobs is that when we've done our part, don't stress out over the results. That's especially true in ministry, by the way. When you've done your part, when you've planted the seeds, that's what he's asking them to do here. Plant seeds of truth. Plant seeds of the gospel as you go. Preach about the kingdom. Preach the good news. Plant those seeds, but don't stress out, guys, when people reject it. You're not in charge of that. That's not your deal. That's the Father's deal. You do your part and then leave the rest to God. How do you do planting seeds and then leaving the rest to God? Do you want to micromanage the results? Bad formula. It'll usually stress you out. And it'll make you eventually think you're the general manager of the universe, which you ain't. Learn to leave the results to God. Jesus trusted these guys with more and more responsibility. And we read in the book of Acts, by the way, that after Jesus had been crucified and resurrected and was about to ascend to the Father, it says that when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. There's that dunamis word again. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. That was their mission. Be my witnesses. And that's ours. And the word there, witnesses, is martyreos. 
They were going to have to take a stand, and it was going to require a big price. They would actually be martyred for their faith. But then the French came along and created another word with a little different meaning. It's the word from the same Greek word, martyreos, it's the word marquis, French word, marquis. And when you drive along and see a cinema, you see perhaps a marquee out front uh, of this theater. And it shows you, it tells you what's going on there. It tells you what it's about right now. And I think that's kind of cool because we are called to be a martyr or perhaps a marquee or maybe both. Jesus has high expectations of us as his witnesses. There's an interesting old legend about what happened after the passage we just read, after Jesus ascended to the Father again. And the old legend says that Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, walked up to him and said, Lord, you suffered so terribly for your people down there. And he says, yes, I did. And Gabriel asked, do they know? Do they know how much you love them and the price you paid so that their sins could be forgiven? Jesus said, no, not, not really, not yet. Gabriel looked perplexed. He said, didn't you tell them? How do they not know? And he said, well, James and John and Peter and a handful of others know. And they're going to, they're going to tell others, and, and, and eventually those others will tell others. And you know what, Gabriel? The word's going to get out, and eventually... The message about what I went to earth to do is going to go all over the world to the ends of the earth. But Gabriel still had a skeptical look because he knew the kind of stuff that people are made of and how fickle and unfaithful and unreliable that we can be. And he said, but Lord, what, what if Peter, James, and John get tired? Lord, what if... What if they lose the message? What if, it, what if people 20 centuries from now just get complacent and don't think it's all that important anymore? What then? Do you have another plan? Jesus said, no, I, I don't have another plan. I'm counting on them. And I want you to understand today, brothers and sisters, he's counting on you. He's counting on me, and there is no plan B. How do you feel now about being chosen for God's team? Now, Jesus made something clear to these guys as we wrap this today. He made something very clear as recorded in John's gospel you see, the big difference in what Jesus did here, putting this team together, and what usually happened with rabbis in the Jewish world was the disciple chose the rabbi. They'd go up to a rabbi and go, oh, I think you're really cool. I love your teaching. I want to be your disciple. The disciple chose the rabbi. That's the way it worked. But Jesus said in John's gospel, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you might bear fruit, fruit that remains. Do you ever wonder 
if Jesus made a good choice choosing you? Joseph Parker was a wonderful preacher in London a few generations ago. And after preaching on this very text right here that we've looked at today, a member came up to him and said, Pastor Parker, why in the world did Jesus choose Judas Iscariot when he knew that he would betray him? And Parker acknowledged that that's quite a mystery, but he said, you want to know an even greater mystery? Why did Jesus choose me? And if you are wondering that question, as I often have, it's important we understand it's not because we're so sharp and special that he chose us. It's because he loves us and he's designed us with a grand purpose in mind. Can I tell you the sad news? There's still tons of people in this world that don't understand that yet. And they still believe that God is this cosmic killjoy sitting there waiting for them to screw up so he can just get them. That's what they think this God is. So far from the truth. The God of the Bible is like that prodigal son's father who while his son is far away from the father in the far country, he sits on the porch and he looks and he waits. And when he sees that prodigal return, he goes and runs and says, let's celebrate. That which was lost is found. Let's have a party. I choose you. And if you've ever wondered what it feels like to be chosen by God, I want you to know something today. I want you to know something if you sense him drawing you right now, that means you've already been chosen. But you need to choose him. You need to say, yes, Lord. I accept the invitation to be on your team. What an honor. God, I pray that you would grant the faith and the grace for them to say yes, even now, even now. Yes, Lord, I accept your invitation to be on your team. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for choosing me. I accept the invitation. And I follow you with all my heart. In Jesus' name, amen.